you guys for being here. Let's go and get started. Um, hey, I'm going to open up with prayer. God, thank you so much for this day and for this, uh, this week of coming before you in worship and sitting under your word. God, I know that I'm tired. I know that the students are tired. It's been a full week, and I know that we have had a lot of words thrown at us in um, preaching and elective classes and worship, and it's very tempting right now to just sit and zone everything out. And I pray that you would actually grab our attentions right now with your story. And just for these few minutes that we're here, Lord, please open our hearts and speak to us. And my words alone can't do that. It has to come from you and your Holy Spirit. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've been talking this week about how stories shape us. The first day we said that your, your life is a story. Your story is not an accident. Your story needs to be shared with other people. And your story needs to be shaped by God's story. So we talked about very practically what it looks like to read the Bible every single day. That reading the Bible is like running a marathon. It's not like sprinting. All right? Pace yourself. Read small amounts each day. Uh, because consistency and faithfulness is so important in our devotion life with God. Yesterday we talked about the false stories that the world is trying to tell us. Uh, the stories of Satan, the master storyteller, who is trying to devour us and tell us stories that will lead to our destruction. We talked about why we can trust the Bible, the historical reasons for why the Bible is true, and the fact that if that is true, then it changes everything. So today what I want to do is I want to walk through a little bit of the Bible with you. I'm going to hit certain points. I won't hit all of it. We're going to move kind of fast at times. But I want you to see some of the characters in the Old Testament and some of the main stories of what happened. And I want you to see how it eventually leads up to Jesus. And the, where we have to start right now is in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 is an interesting chapter because this is right after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And he's out walking with these two strange men that he meets. And they said, did you hear about what happened in Jerusalem? And he says, what, what are you talking about? And they said, are you, have you been like living in a hole this whole time? Like Jesus of Nazareth was killed in Jerusalem. And some people are saying he rose from the dead. And it was like, it's the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about it. How do you not know? And so they keep going and Jesus kind of keeps playing along with them. He keeps talking. They don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. And eventually, Jesus starts teaching them the scriptures. And in verse 27 of Luke chapter 24, it says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what Jesus does is he goes back and he walks through certain things of when it says Moses and the prophets, that's another way of saying the Old Testament, the scriptures. He talks about all the main points of the Old Testament and he tells them these stories, they're actually about me. And as he begins to do that, it, it later says that their hearts were burning within them. They were so excited about the story that he was telling them. And so what I want to do this morning is walk you through a little bit of that story in hopes that God would set your hearts on fire for him, that, he, that your hearts would burn within you for this amazing story that he has been telling and it starts, like every good story, 
the beginning. Because in the beginning, there was nothing. And then God made everything out of that nothing. He said that it was good. He made the trees, the rivers, the valleys, the canyons, the mountains. He made it all. And then he made man and woman, and he said it was very good. And he lived in perfect peace and harmony with his creation. Until one day, man and woman were deceived by the serpent. They ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, and creation was ruined. The fall happened, and God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. And what's interesting is that as he's doing that, he sets these two cherubim, who are these mighty angel warriors, in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that they can't get back in. But what he says is this. He says, I don't want them to come back in lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. Dot, dot, dot. He never finishes his sentence. It's like he's, he's thinking, and as he says that, he pauses, and he holds that thought for another time. Because what God is saying is, if Adam and Eve were to go back and eat of the tree of life after they had already sinned, they would live forever as sinners. And God doesn't want that to happen. So God kicking them out of the garden was actually him being gracious to them. And saying, I'm going to make this right. But it's going to take a long time to tell this story. And time goes by. Generations pass. There's a guy named Noah who has a family. And Noah was righteous. But the rest of the world wasn't. The rest of the world were just broken sinners. And God decides to pour his judgment out of the world. But he saves Noah and his family. And how does he save them? In the ark. All right. So they build this big boat. And they bring the animals in and they rest in the boat and God floods the earth and the rains pour down, but not one drop of that rain touches Noah and his family because they are safe within the ark. And life begins anew and generations pass and they come and go and they scatter throughout the land. And eventually we get to this guy named Abram. And I'm sure you've heard of Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of many nations. He's a very famous character from the Bible. And a lot of us look at him as just like this great hero, this almost perfect man. But guess what? Abraham was a pagan for the first 70, 80 years of his life. For the first 70 or 80 years of his life, he worshipped the moon god. And then all of a sudden, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, comes along and says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. So he does. He leaves his family and follows God and goes to the promised land of Canaan. And there Abraham has his own family. He has two sons. What were his sons' names? Yeah. Isaac and Ishmael. Who was the oldest? Ishmael. But interestingly enough, in a culture where the oldest son was supposed to receive the blessing and the full inheritance of the father, who received the blessing? Isaac, the younger brother. That's a key theme we're going to hit on. Then Isaac had two sons. What were his sons' names? Jacob and Esau. They were twins, but one of them came out first. Who was the oldest? Esau. Esau. So Esau is supposed to get the birthright or the inheritance, the blessing, but who gets it instead? Jacob, because he fools Esau. And Isaac goes along with it. He gets the blessing. And then Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel. The 11th born son, Joseph, was Jacob's favorite. 
And all the other brothers were envious. They didn't like that. So they beat Joseph up and they sold him into uh, slavery. And Joseph makes his way to Egypt where he's a prisoner and a slave. But he eventually climbs through the ranks of Egypt until he becomes the second highest ranking official in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And then Jacob and his family, they're worried because a famine is coming into the land. And Joseph, who has made provisions in Egypt for this famine, says, y'all come live with me. Come, come to Egypt. We'll take care of you. So Jacob packs up his family. They leave the promised land and they go to Egypt and they live with Joseph. And they're taken care of and everything's good. Time goes by and all of Jacob's sons have sons and daughters and the, the tribes grow. And then, eventually, Pharaoh, there was a new Pharaoh who didn't know who Joseph was. And he got scared that the Israelites were growing so big in number. And he said, you know what? We need to figure out what to do with these Israelites so they don't rise up and just take us out. So what does he do to the Israelites? makes them slaves. He oppresses them into slavery. And how many years were they slaves? 400 years they were slaves. That means that there were generation after generation of people who were born, who lived the full life, and who died knowing nothing but slavery. Generation after generation. 400 years until God eventually raised up a savior, a deliverer, a hero named Moses. Moses is maybe the greatest hero of the Old Testament. Moses was the deliverer who came before Pharaoh with the staff and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so the plagues come and there's 10 plagues. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. But finally, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh says, fine, go. I'm tired of dealing with this. Just get, get, take the Israelites and get out of here. So Moses takes the Israelites and they leave Egypt and they're celebrating and rejoicing. Then they get to the Red Sea and they're trying to figure out how to get across. When all of a sudden Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, why did I let them go? This is stupid. So he gathers his army and he takes off after the Israelites. And right when they get to the Red Sea, Moses raises his staff. The waters part. The Israelites cross safely to the other side. The Egyptians follow and the waters crash down and drown them all. So the Israelites are safe on the other side. And they're like, yes, we made it. We're good. Now what do we do? I guess we go to the promised land. And they wander around in the wilderness. And they get hungry. And they get thirsty. And they start complaining to Moses. They're saying, Moses, we had food and water back in Egypt. And now you've brought us out here into the desert to die? Like, we were better off as slaves. And so Moses goes to God and says, God, uh, they're wanting to stone me right now. They want to kill me. What do you want me to do? And so God says this. He says, we're going to have a trial. Like, there's, this is like a courtroom scene. He says, gather the elders and come before you. And essentially, like Moses is put on trial here because the Israelites want to kill him. But God says this, I want you to stand next to this rock and I will come and stand before you. Which is really interesting language because God is basically saying, I'm going to stand in your place in the seat of judgment. I'm going to hover over this rock in a cloud. And then I want you to take your staff and I want you to smack that rock. And when he smacked it, what happened? Water. water flowed out of the rock and the Israelites drank from the water. And so they were sustained. And they eventually keep wandering around the wilderness. Moses dies. A guy named Joshua is 
raised up as their leader. He leads them into the promised land. They conquer all their enemies. They take the promised land and they settle down. And then they had no leadership after Joshua died. In fact, in the book of Judges, it says that there was no king in Israel and everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. So, these judges would come along like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and they they would lead the people of Israel, but they would come and go and there was no real authority. And finally, the Israelites were like, we want a king, all right? God said, well, I'm your king. The Israelites said, no, 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 we want like a real person to be our king because all the other nations, they have kings and we want a king who's going to go out before us and fight our battles for us. And so God gave them a king, a guy named Saul, who was like, he looked the part, all right? He's big, tall, handsome, strong. He's a good fighter. Like Saul is the king and they're so happy about it. But then one day, the Philistines attack. And the Philistines had this giant of a man named Goliath, nine feet tall. And now this is an interesting part about ancient warfare. They would, they would have someone called a champion. Here's how it worked. Uh, <clears throat> instead of two armies just like going at each other and killing everybody, one army would say, we're going to send out one person. He's our representative. He's our champion. And he's going to fight your best warrior, your champion. And whoever wins, then that whole side gets the credit for that victory. And so the Philistines send out Goliath. Uh, and then the Israelites look around and wait for their champion. Who was supposed to be their champion? Saul. Saul. They said they wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles. They wanted a champion. Saul was supposed to be the champion, but he hid like a coward in his tent because he didn't want to fight Goliath. And then one day, this tiny little shepherd boy from Bethlehem shows up in the camp, and he looks around, and he hears Goliath like mocking the Lord, and he says, who's going to fight this guy? Nobody says a word. And David goes, fine, I'll do it. And he grabs a sling and five stones, slams the stone into Goliath's head, kills him by the power of the Lord, and David becomes the new champion of Israel and eventually becomes the king of Israel. And Israel prospered under David. It became a powerful nation. Israel was the greatest king of the Old Testament. He was a man after God's own heart. But guess what? He was also not the hero that everybody thought he was. He was a sinner. In fact, there's a story in there, a really sad story, where he kills one of his best friends in order to take his wife for his own. he, He did terrible, terrible things. As great of a king as he was, he also let the people down. And he was disobedient and sinful. Now, he eventually had a son named Solomon, who was also a great king. And the nation of Israel prospered under Solomon. But Solomon also failed, and he was not the king everyone thought he would be. And he eventually kind of led Israel into ruin. And a few more kings came after him, and the nation of Israel just became weaker and weaker over time. Until they were conquered by a group of people called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians took all of the Israelites into captivity. And then the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. The Persians were conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks were conquered by the Romans. This whole time, all these empires just keep changing places. 
And the Israelites are just kind of getting tossed back and forth between all of them. And eventually the tribes of Israel just get scattered into captivity. And they get lost. And two tribes eventually make their way back to Israel. Only two of the twelve tribes. It's all that's left. And they settle back in their home and they rebuild the temple. But the Romans are in charge. The Romans are ruling the world at this point. The Israelites are under oppression. Now during this time, God raised up prophets to speak to the people, to encourage them. That's like a mouthpiece. But there was also a point when eventually God stopped raising up prophets. And for 400 years, there were no prophets. For 400 years, God remained silent while all of these different empires ruled over the people. I'm going to pause right there. I'm going to break from this story and go to another story that's going to lead into to where I want to go here. How many of y'all have seen or read Lord of the Rings before? Okay. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Um, I read all the books when I was in high school. I've been rereading them recently. And there is a character in the first book that's not in the movies. And I think it's because he's just way too weird, honestly. It's a guy by the name of Tom Bombadil. Now, Tom Bombadil is basically this weird hermit who lives out in the middle of the woods. He takes care of the animals and the trees. His wife is a river goddess, of all things. And they just kind of have their own fun little life out in the middle of the woods. And Frodo and his friends come along. Now, here's the story if you're not familiar. Frodo has this ring of power that he has to destroy before the Dark Lord can get it. And everybody is scared to death of this ring of power, like Gandalf and Aragorn, Galadriel, all these powerful creatures in Middle-earth. They can't touch the ring. They can barely look at the ring because it's just it's too powerful. And when Frodo puts the ring on, what happens to him? He turns invisible, okay? So Frodo and his friends are coming through. Hang on. They're coming through the woods, and then... They are rescued from these like ghosts in the woods by Tom Bombadil. He brings them back to his hut, to his cabin. And Tom Bombadil starts, starts talking to them uh, about their journey. And Frodo explains the journey that's going on and about how he has to destroy the ring. And then Tom Bombadil does this. This is a strange scene. Tom says, hey, Frodo, let me see that ring you got. So Frodo takes it off the necklace, the chain it was on, hands it to Tom. Tom looks at it. Holds it up, and Frodo's like, whoa, he's like getting pretty close to the ring there. Like, be careful, partner. And then he flicks it in the air, and in midair, it vanishes. And Frodo and the hobbits are like, what? What just happened? And then he reaches his hand behind his back and pulls it out again. He's like doing magic tricks with the ring of power. Okay, it's like a little trinket to him. And he's kind of giggling and laughing. And then he takes the ring and puts it on his own finger, and he doesn't disappear. And Frodo and the hobbits are freaking out right now. They're like, how are you doing this? And he just laughs and flicks the ring back to Frodo. Now, Frodo thinks that, oh, he switched the ring. It's not the real ring. So as everybody else is talking, Frodo kind of sneaks over to the corner of the room and puts the ring on just to test it. And sure enough, he disappears. It is the real ring. And he's just astounded. Like, how is Tom Bombadil doing all this? As he is wearing the ring invisible in the corner, Tom Bombadil does this. Hey, Frodo, I see you over there in the corner. Why don't you come back over here and join us? Let's not be playing with that ring anymore. He sees Frodo while he's invisible. Okay. 
This Tom Bombadil's in there for like two chapters, and then he's barely mentioned again the rest of the story. That's it. He really doesn't serve that much of a purpose in the story. And so scholars and people would ask J.R.R. Tolkien, the author, they would say, who is Tom Bombadil? Like, what's, what's, what's the point of this guy? And Tolkien's answer was, there are some things about this story that just need to remain a mystery. And scholars theorize, and Tolkien never confirmed this, but he also never denied it. The theory, well, first off, they, they asked Tolkien, they said, is Tom Bombadil the most powerful character in Middle-earth? And he said, it's not so much that he's the most powerful character, it's that he's outside the powers of Middle-earth. The powers of Middle-earth don't affect him. And so the theory is this, that scholars have come up with. The theory is that Tom Bombadil is J.R.R. Tolkien. That Tolkien loved his creation so much, that he loved his story so much, he wanted to be a part of it, so he wrote himself into the story at a point when his main character needed him the most. Frodo was scared. He was starting to lose hope in this journey. He was encountering the darkness, and in comes Tom Bombadil, and he says, hey, there is still light left in this world, and there is still goodness, and he shows him that good magic, that deep, old magic. And sends him on his way. Listen to me. I've been walking you through the Old Testament up until this point. And I'm reached the point where something amazing happens. The author of the Old Testament, the author of all creation, God himself, loved his creation so much that he wrote himself into the story. At the point when his people needed him the most. On a quiet night in Bethlehem. Shepherds were watching their flock. And out of nowhere, angels appear shouting, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace toward men. And they said, Born to you this day in the town of David as a Savior. And he is Christ the Lord. Go to him. Go. You'll find him. And so the shepherds just get up and they go to Bethlehem. And they see Mary and Joseph. And there's a baby there. And that baby is Jesus, the Savior of all mankind, God himself, who has been written into this story. And when Jesus grew up, died on the cross and rose again, and he's talking to these two men on the road to Emmaus, he tells them all the stories were about him. And so he walks through and he says, you know all the prophets of the Old Testament? I'm the true prophet. I am the word of God made flesh. He said, you know King David? What a great king he was. I am the true king you've been waiting for. The greater David. You know all those judges who ruled over Israel? I am the true judge who comes to bring justice to my people. I am the greater Samson. The greater Gideon. The greater of all these people. He said, I am the true Moses who leads my people out of the slavery of sin. And when his people are in the wilderness crying out for water, Paul says that Jesus was the rock that Moses struck. Isn't that crazy? Jesus comes and says, I stood in the place of Moses and I took on the judgment that he was supposed to have. And I took the blame and I took the blows. 
And out of that beating came living water for all of my people. Jesus said, I am the firstborn son who gave up my inheritance so that all of my younger brothers and sisters could have it. Who are the younger brothers and sisters of Jesus? Us. He gave up his blessing and inheritance so that we could have it in full and he paid for it on the cross. Jesus said, I am the father Abraham. Jesus said, I am the ark that saved Noah and his family and not one drop of God's wrath touched them when they were hidden within me. Jesus said, I am the second Adam who came to make everything right that the first Adam ruined. Jesus said, all these stories, they're all about me. I am the hero you've been waiting for. I am the hero and the savior of all mankind. Jesus is the main character of this story, and every story points us to him. He's the savior that all of this is about. Now, Jesus goes on and ascends into heaven, and all these letters are written in the New Testament. Eventually, we get to this book in the New Testament, the last one. What's the last one called? Revelation. Revelation. It's basically like the end of the story. And I'm going to give you an example of, of why he gives us that book. Back in 2007, the, um, uh, the, Harry, the last Harry Potter book came out, The Deathly Hallows. And I, I started reading the Harry Potter books that summer for the first time. And my thought was like, oh, there's a lot of Harry Potter craze going on. I'm just going to kind of slowly, leisurely read through these books. Maybe it'll take me about a year or so, and then I'll just go get the seventh book, you know, because it will have been out for a year at that point. I read through the first six books in about five weeks. I could not put them down. I was obsessed with them. And I had about a week where I had to wait for the seventh book to come out. It was the longest week of my life. Like, I was just dying to get my hands on the Deathly Hallows. I wanted to read it so bad. And it was this cultural phenomenon where like people were showing up at bookstores at midnight and lines wrapped around the buildings like waiting to get their hands on that seventh book. Okay, I ended up going like a day later with one of my friends named Kurt. Kurt was the guy who introduced me to the Harry Potter books. And, um, and so I'm standing in line with him. I get my book. He gets his. And this is what he does. He gets that Harry Potter book. And the first thing he does, flips to the end, gets to the last page and he goes, Closes the book and he goes, okay. And then he starts over at page one. And I'm like, what are you doing right now? You just ruined the story. Why did you go to the very end? Like, that's the, we've been waiting this whole time. You ruined the story. And he looked at me and he said, I just had to know that everything was going to be okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, I get that. Listen, the Bible ruins the end of the story for you. Just in case you were wondering. Revelation ruins the end of the story. But it does that because Jesus wants you to know everything's going to be okay. All of this suffering and all of this turmoil and destruction and brokenness that we live in, Jesus wants you to know that all of that is going to be redeemed. All of that is going to be made better. All of the sad things are going to come untrue. That's what Jesus wants you to know. Listen, turn to Revelation chapter 22, if you have your Bibles. I'm closing with this. 
Revelation 22. This is the end of the story. Remember how earlier I said that in the garden God banished Adam and Eve and He guarded the entrance because He didn't want them to eat of the tree of life while they were sinners? And He held that off so that nobody could eat of the tree of life until all had been made right. And then in Revelation 22 we see this. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here we see the tree of life is back. It's back into play. This tree from the garden that nobody was allowed to touch after they'd sinned, God has destroyed sin. He's destroyed evil. He's made all things right. And he has said, now, now you can have the tree of life again. And it's all yours forever. This is how your story ends. We've been spending this whole week talking about stories. Your life is a story. Remember how I said every story has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end? Guess what? It's not entirely true because your story actually doesn't have an end. If you are in Christ, you live forever and ever, enjoying Him and each other and His creation forever and ever. This life we live here on earth is just the beginning of that story. I'm going to close with this. This is maybe my favorite thing that was ever written outside of the Bible. It is the last paragraph of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. He basically says the children lived happily ever after, but he says it in a way that only C.S. Lewis could say it. He says, All of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now begins chapter one of the great story that goes on and on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is the story you have to look forward to. Now, we don't get that ending unless we trust Jesus to be our hero. You are not your own hero. There is a hero out there who will make all things right and who will give you a story where every chapter is better than the one before if you will put your trust in him. I pray that you would. Let's pray right now. God, your story is amazing. God, we, we ask that our hearts would burn within us as we look back through the story of Moses and the prophets and the Old Testament and all that you told us concerning yourself. You are the hero of the whole Bible, the whole story. It's all about you. And you have let us be a part of that story. And you've made it so that our story will go on forever. Where every chapter is better than the one before where we will know you and your beauty and your richness and your kindness forever and ever. So will you help us to enjoy your love, to enjoy your story? Will you help us to feel how badly we need you as a hero? Will you help us to see that truth? We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys.